Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, Episode 26, The Brassoans and the Montagnards. In today's episode, we're going to be combining the strands of the last three episodes as we complete the stage for Revolutionary War. Firstly, we're going to recap the various troubles besieging the nation in late 1791 and early 1792. Secondly, we'll explore in greater depth the positions of the Brissoans and the court as they set the stage for their desired conflict with the German princes. Thirdly, we're going to spend most of this episode focusing on the civil war that erupts within the Jacobin Club, because it's from within the Jacobins that we finally uncover a forceful and notable resistance to the nation's embrace of revolutionary war. Finally, we'll examine the diplomatic and the ministerial crises which result in the commencement of hostilities between France and Austria. Now, before we get into it, a big thank you to those people who have signed up as Patreons since the last episode, including Beth, Paul, Henry, Kirill, Ken, Ray and Mitchell. Also, a thank you to Harris, who has increased his donation, and a special mention to the extra-generous Champions of the People, Cameron and Jeffrey. As always, thank you to all Patreons for supporting the show, and please keep your eyes peeled for some bonus episodes over the next couple of weeks. If you're enjoying the show, and you're keen for more Grey History, particularly more frequent Grey History, then signing up as a Patreon for as little as half a cup of coffee is a great way to help. Of course, I appreciate that the world is a very challenging place at the moment. So for those people who want to help the podcast in a non-financial way, telling your friends and family about the show is another great way to do so. Finally, thank you to everyone who has recently left a written review or has reached out to me by email. Once again, thank you for reaching out, as your letters of support and encouragement really do make my day. Anyway, I have talked long enough, so let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 26, The Brissoans and the Montagnards. When I was younger, I was partial to the highly addictive substance known as video games. So long as it didn't involve race cars or soccer balls, I would generally dabble. From the Elder Scrolls to the Halo series, from Total War to Viva Piñata, I played pretty much everything under the sun. Partially because I wanted to, and partially because it was my job. 
You see, my first casual job was at EB Games, which I'm led to believe is known as GameStop in the US and Game in the UK. As you can imagine, working at a video game store was a dream job for a 15-year-old addict such as myself, and the workplace has never quite been the same since. Now, while my gaming days are long behind me, I do remember many games fondly, particularly the early editions of the Call of Duty franchise. For those of you who have never played, that's fine, because I'm not about to launch into a nostalgic ode to a bygone era. Where I am going with this, though, believe it or not, is ancient Greece. You see, when playing Call of Duty, when you died in a mission, various historical quotes would display on the screen as the game reloaded. Some of these quotes were written by leaders of the last century, while others were spoken by generals a millennium ago. One quote that always stuck with me was the following. We make war so that we may live in peace. Given everything that we have discussed about the Brissoans and their advocacy for revolutionary war, you might be forgiven for thinking that that line comes from either Jacques Brousseau or one of his many well-spoken associates. In fact, that line, we make war so that we may live in peace, comes from none other than the Greek philosopher Aristotle. Yet, despite being penned in the 4th century BC, Aristotle's words still hold true today. How many wars have been fought in the last hundred years alone, on the grounds that not to do so would further endanger the peace? World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, numerous conflicts in the Middle East, hell, even the war on drugs to an extent. We make war so that we may live in peace. The reasoning behind this seemingly contradictory statement has been supported by others since. The American president and general, Ulysses S. Grant, for example, stated in the 19th century, I have never advocated war except as a means of peace. It's an interesting rationale, isn't it? At first glance, the idea may seem illogical and irreconcilable. But I cannot deny that there is a certain amount of truth to those words, at least in some circumstances. If your opponent, for example, is clearly hell-bent on war, if they're absolutely determined to eradicate your liberties, if not your very existence, then what choice do you have? Surely, in some circumstances, war is the only means of obtaining a lasting and just peace. It was this sort of logic which was adopted by the Brissoans as they made their case for war. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. 
He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. From late 1791, the French Legislative Assembly, and the nation more broadly, was beset with a myriad of problems. Firstly, the people were hungry. Food and other basic commodities were increasingly scarce and prohibitively expensive, while the inflation of the Assignat merely made these problems worse. Secondly, the countryside was plagued with sporadic bouts of violent insurrection. Religious unrest tormented certain pockets of France, while in other departments, the peasants were in open revolt against the remnants of feudalism. Urban communities were by no means immune to this unrest, as revolutionaries and royalists brawled in the streets to advance their vision for the French nation. Finally, the army was increasingly in disarray. By December 1791, half of the army's officers had abandoned their posts, and this shortage of experienced leaders was more than merely problematic, as European monarchs openly threatened war against revolutionary France. In short, the people were hungry, violence was increasingly common, the economy was floundering, and the revolution was far from secure. Importantly to Jacques Brousseau and his Republican allies, the nation's woes, numerous as they were, had only a few origins. According to the Brousseauans, all of these problems were the work of the enemies of the nation. The most visible of these enemies were, of course, the émigrés, the disgruntled aristocrats who were encamped along the French border and actively scheming for the demise of the revolution. These sinister aristocrats were not only collaborating with foreign monarchs, but internal conspirators as well. First among these were the non-constitutional clergy. Almost half the nation's priests had refused to swear an oath of loyalty to the constitution, and these refractory priests were now actively undermining it. Through their sermons of subversion and sabotage, these scoundrels were jeopardising the new revolutionary order. Furthermore, the Brousseauans suspected the court to be knee-deep in treasonous activities as well. Rumours swirled of the Austrian committee suspected to be headed by the Austrian-born queen, Marie Antoinette. This committee was supposedly working with foreign powers to further undermine the revolution and secure the resurrection of the old regime. From the viewpoint of the Brousseauans, the nation was under siege. The new regime's enemies actively sabotaged the revolution, and unfortunately, this assault was effectively going unanswered. Since a war against the revolution was already being waged in the shadows, 
According to the Brassoans, the only viable solution to the nation's woes was to bring that struggle into plain sight. An actual war would allow France to confront her enemies abroad. It would allow the nation to identify conspirators at home. And perhaps most importantly, war would allow the kingdom to end its numerous troubles by addressing the source of its misfortunes. Believing the nation to already be a besieged fortress, the Brissoans insisted on making war so that France may live in peace. Originally, the calls for war were centred on the émigrés. Led by the king's brothers and former ministers, the émigrés were encamped along the Rhine River, and from their base at Coublentz, they gathered a small armed force as well. The territory which the émigrés occupied belonged to the German princes of the Holy Roman Empire, specifically the electors of Trier and Mainz. Both princes had a bone to pick with the revolution. Small enclaves nestled within France belonged to these two men. But when the revolutionaries abolished many feudal rights and privileges, they argued that these enlightened reforms applied not only to French territory, but to these enclaves within French territory as well. Thus, the electors had lost valuable privileges as a result of the revolution and they were keen to see their prerogatives restored. Unsurprisingly, the presence of these hostile camps outraged the revolutionary press, and throughout October and November, the Brissoans pressured the government to do something about it. Initially, the Legislative Assembly tried to act through legal means. In late 1791, the legislature passed laws targeting the émigrés, with those who failed to return to France by a specified date being tried for treason in absentia. King Louis had vetoed the majority of these measures, and intended to veto the laws against refractory priests, which followed shortly thereafter. With the court blocking legislative measures against the revolution's enemies, the Brissoans merely became more convinced that the only viable pathway to resolve the crises facing the nation was war. And so, war is what they demanded. If the king's vetoes prevented the legislature from punishing the emigres, then perhaps public opinion could compel the king to effectively withdraw his vetoes by demanding that the German princes disperse the emigres instead. The assumption here was that the princes would naturally refuse this request, and thus the French would have a cause for war. The mighty French kingdom could hardly allow a cluster of small German states to defy the wishes of Paris and harbour the enemies of the nation. This was, in a sense, Louis XVI's Cuban Missile Crisis. Hostile forces were gathering at the nation's frontiers, and these forces threatened the nation's very existence. Inaction was not a possibility. Something had to be done. Unlike President John F. Kennedy, however, Louis XVI had no qualms provoking a hostile superpower through the invasion of an allied state. In fact, that was the plan. With political deadlock between the executive and legislative branches, and with the monarch's liberties and prerogatives continuing to diminish, 
the French monarchs had decided to adopt a new policy to reverse their misfortune of recent years. As discussed last episode, the royals, like the Brissoans, had concluded that war presented the best means for ridding themselves of their domestic political rivals. As a result, the calls for war from the Jacobin Club played right into the hands of the court. Believing that any war would be short and disastrous for France, conflict would permit European monarchs to free the imprisoned sovereigns and reverse the clock on this unwelcome and nightmarish revolution. Marie Antoinette remarked on the Brissoans' war policy. I do believe that we are about to declare war on the electors, the imbeciles. They cannot see that this will serve us well, for if we begin it, all the powers will become involved. King Louis agreed, writing to a confidant. Instead of civil, we will have political war, and things will be much better for it. France's physical and moral state renders it incapable of sustaining a semi-campaign. Having privately decided to embrace the war policy of the Brissoans, the Assembly provided the perfect means for Louis to make his sentiments public. In late November, the legislature passed a formal request that the king issue an ultimatum to the princes. Either they dispersed the enemies of the nation or become enemies of the nation. Underscoring the widespread support for the coming conflict, the deputy which proposed this ultimatum was a Fayettist, that is to say, a supporter of the Marquis de Lafayette. While both the Jacobins and the Fillons had internal divisions over the merits of war, their deputies in the Legislative Assembly were overwhelmingly in favour of it. On the 29th of November, a deputation approached the King with the Assembly's formal request, and its leader, Vaubon, stated the following. Sire, the assembly had scarcely turned its gaze towards the state of the kingdom than it saw that the troubles which still agitated arise from the criminal preparations of French emigrants. Their audacity is encouraged by German princes who trample underfoot the treaties between them and France and affect to forget that they are indebted to this nation for the Treaty of Westphalia, which secured their rights and their safety. These hostile preparations, these threats of invasion, will require armaments absorbing immense sums, which the nation would have joyfully used to pay back its creditors. It is for you, sire, to make them desist. It is for you to address to foreign powers the language befitting the king of the French. Tell them that whatever preparations are permitted to be made against France, there France recognises only foes, that we will religiously observe our oath to make no conquests, that we offer them good friendship, the inviolable friendship of a free and powerful people, that we will respect their laws, their customs and their constitutions, but that we will have our own respected. Tell them that if princes of Germany continue to favour preparations directed against the French, The French will carry into their territories not fire and sword, but
but liberty. It is for them to calculate the consequences of this awakening of nations. With this request, Louis had the means he needed to pursue his policy of a war of liberation. Not the liberation of the enslaved peoples of Europe, but the liberation of unfortunate French monarchs who had been imprisoned by a depraved city full of vile revolutionaries. As the monarch prepared his response to the Assembly's request, a new war minister was installed on the 9th of December. The man chosen for the job was the Comte de Narbonne, a committed constitutional monarchist and an associate of many leading members of the Fillon Club, including both Lafayette and Barnev. A friend of Talleyrand, Narbonne replaced the bishop as the lover of Jacques Necker's daughter, Madame de Stahl, and the new minister was supposedly the illegitimate son of Louis XV. If that's true, then he was a relative of King Louis XVI, a half-uncle, if you will, although Narbonne was a year younger than the king, both in their mid-thirties. Despite having the initial support of Barnev, a leading pacifist amongst the Fillons, Narbonne quickly realised that a small, successful war could be beneficial. A brief and victorious conflict would simultaneously strengthen the Bourbon monarchy and cement the constitution of 1791. As a result, Narbonne was happy to assist both Louis and Lafayette as they worked towards their common objective of European conflict. On the 14th of December, the King and Narbonne attended the Legislative Assembly, and Louis placed France firmly on the road to war. Interrupted by regular applause, Louis announced that the princes had one month to cease all the gatherings and hostile preparations of the French emigres. If they failed to comply by January the 15th, the electors of Trier and Mines would be considered enemies of the nation. King Louis declared, If these declarations are not heeded, then, gentlemen, it will only remain for me to propose war. War, which a people who have solemnly renounced conquest never declares without necessity, but which a free and generous nation will undertake and carry on when its honour and safety require it. Having said his piece, Louis retired, and Narbonne took over the logistics. The new war minister, who was the only minister to enjoy the confidence and respect of the assembly, requested a special subsidy of 20 million livres for military preparations. Furthermore, over the next month, Narbonne inspected multiple frontier fortifications, evaluating the state of both men and munitions. With the king's ultimatum declared, War, it seemed, was simply a matter of time. All that was required was for the German princes to refuse the king's demands, and the fireworks would begin shortly thereafter. Yet, throughout December 1791, as the court, the Fillons, and the Brissoans all called for war against the enemies of the nation, there was a voice which arose in opposition to the coming conflict. That voice was not Barnev's, 
although the influential Fionn leader did do his best to avert the looming catastrophe. No, the most prominent, and indeed the most memorable voice to oppose the coming war, arose from within the Jacobin Club itself. That voice belonged to none other than Maximilien Robespierre. Having gone to the effort of reintroducing Jacques Brousseau back in episode 24, I feel it's only fair to reintroduce his future arch-nemesis, Maximilien Robespierre. However, the fact that the rivalry between these two men will come to dominate the Jacobin Club is just one of many reasons to spend the time reintroducing the individual who is arguably the most contentious and most controversial figure of the French Revolution. The face of the reign of terror and of this podcast. The perceptions of Robespierre and his legacy are diverse to say the least. To some, the lawyer from Arras was a national hero, a misunderstood champion of liberty who saved France from reactionary chaos and who, unfortunately, became the scapegoat for the horrendous crimes of others. On the other end of the spectrum, Robespierre's detractors depict him as a power-hungry tyrant, a bloodthirsty fanatic who sacrificed the revolution's principles as he assumed the role of the nation's dictator. If the purpose of this podcast is to explore the grey, well, it doesn't get any more grey than Maximilien Robespierre. A hero and a villain, a democrat and a dictator, a saint and a scoundrel. That is the contested legacy of one of France's most famous revolutionaries. So, hopefully I can do justice to an incredibly complex character, and hopefully I have underscored the need for a reintroduction. Born in 1758, Robespierre was orphaned at the age of 10 and attended the College of Louis-le-Grand. A good student, Robespierre embraced the histories of the ancient Greek and Roman republics, so much so that he acquired the nickname the Roman. While not impoverished, Robespierre certainly did not live a well-heeled lifestyle, and the capable student eventually became a lawyer upon finishing his studies. More importantly, however, Robespierre became a student of the teachings of the Genevan philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Robespierre's passion for both classical history and Enlightenment philosophy would leave a lasting impression on his character. Idolising the role of the virtuous legislator, prior to his election to the Estates General in 1789, Robespierre had already developed an affinity for the intense moral politics advocated by Rousseau. In fact, affinity is perhaps an understatement. Historian Gaetano Salvamini describes Rousseau as Robespierre's god, with the future revolutionary leader as seeing himself as Rousseau's prophet. A tad dramatic, perhaps, but historian Annie Besant states that the deceased Genevan philosopher was Robespierre's master in politics. Arriving at Versailles in 1789, Robespierre was a nobody. 
small and feeble, his physical features did not distinguish him, and neither did his oratory skills. A monotonous speaking style failed to make an impression, especially in the shadows of powerful speakers like the Comte de Mirabeau. But, while his somewhat high-pitched tone failed to garner attention for the young deputy from Arras, something else did. That something was Robespierre's habit for speaking openly and plainly on pretty much any and every topic that interested him. Furthermore, Robespierre would consistently speak his mind on controversial and contentious matters, irrelevant of the uproar his actions threatened to unleash. By the end of the National Assembly, Robespierre had made some 150 speeches, and in doing so, over the course of two years, the non-entity from Arras had turned himself into a prominent and popular leader of the revolutionary left. Routinely demonstrating the courage to speak his mind, above all else, Robespierre was known for his consistency in a political environment characterised by inconsistent politicians. I mean, think about it. Duport, Barneve, Lamette, Lafayette, Meunier, even Mirabeau, albeit secretly at this point, they had all transformed themselves from progressive patriots to either pragmatic centrists or despised reactionaries. Robespierre's consistency was otherwise unheard of in a revolutionary environment that was unstable and ever-changing. Irrelevant of how unpopular his views were, irrelevant of the contempt he received in the press, irrelevant of the enemies he created amongst both revolutionaries and royalists, Robespierre remained wedded to his convictions. For example, while Robespierre was not alone in opposing the suspense of veto and the distinction between active and passive citizens, Robespierre was one of the few deputies to argue against the legislation enabling martial law. Furthermore, Robespierre relentlessly resisted the undemocratic elements of the constitution, such as the steep eligibility requirements for deputies and the king's influence over matters of war and peace. But it wasn't just major legislation that garnered his attention. Robespierre advocated for the emancipation of French Jews lamented the immorality of slavery, and ironically, championed the abolishment of the death penalty. Critically, Robespierre was the instigator of the National Assembly's self-denying ordinance, the law which prevented members of the National Assembly from being elected to the body's successor. In their entirety, these positions not only earned him respect amongst the Jacobin Club, particularly after it split with the Fionns, but also the admiration of many in the more militant Cordelier Club, which, like the Jacobins, survived the reactionary tricolour terror of mid-1791. The result of all of his actions was a new epithet, Robespierre the Incorruptible. Amongst his contemporary supporters, he was perceived as ernst, sombre, austere and honest. Acquiring a reputation for his integrity, he was courageous enough to speak his mind and was disinterested by the temptations of money and power. The pleasures of the flesh didn't interest him either, with Robespierre truly living 
the exemplary private life required of the virtuous and selfless public servant he sought to emulate. His detractors, however, present these positive attributes as negative characteristics. According to his enemies, of which he had many, Robespierre was a hypocritical fanatic. Cold and narrow-hearted, Robespierre was an uncompromising and self-deluded zealot, an expert in presenting crime as virtue. A man of mediocre talents, he was vain, suspicious, and prone to the shortcomings of both pride and envy. Inflexible and dogmatic, it was this heartless and misguided extremist who would become the face of the terror. An all-consuming crocodile, according to the contemporary Swedish radical Thomas Thorild. In short, his epithet might have been the incorruptible, but both supporters and detractors would agree that Robespierre's legacy has been corrupted. They would disagree, passionately, however, over just which part of his legacy needs to be rectified. Yet, over the rest of this season, there will be ample time to get into the controversies surrounding Maximilien Robespierre. What is required now is an analysis of Robespierre's role on the nation's road to war. A role that is of huge importance and is, surprisingly, not particularly controversial. Hello from the future. It's Will here and I'm currently recording this in August 2023. I just wanted to say thank you for listening to Grey History and assure you that the best is most certainly yet to come. I'm talking to you now to provide a quick clarification regarding the Grey History community on Patreon. The way that the community works is that you donate a fixed value, say $2, per future episode which you can cancel at any time. Critically, you're only charged when new episodes are first released. This is important, because let's say that I've currently produced 60-odd episodes, you're not going to be charged for the next 30 episodes as you catch up on previously published content. Instead, it's only when brand new episodes are published that you'll make a contribution. So. If you're catching up on the back catalogue, you can sign up to the show's community and enjoy all the episode extras alongside the main show. You'll be able to listen to dozens of episode extras, you'll be able to enjoy hours of great bonus content, and it will cost you next to nothing. Depending on how fast you catch up, you may contribute towards one, two, or perhaps three episodes. That's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. So if you're enjoying Grey History, you can get the maximum out of the show by supporting the podcast on Patreon and listening to the amazing bonus content while you catch up. Furthermore, you can download a private podcast feed to your preferred podcast app, placing all the main content alongside the bonus content in an easily accessible manner. In short, if you're enjoying Grey History, why not enjoy it even more? and support the podcast on Patreon today. Just follow the link in the show notes, on the website, or Google Grey History Patreon. I look forward to welcoming you personally. 
By December 1791, Robespierre wielded considerable influence within the Jacobin Club. If the Jacobin Club had once consisted of three factions, by the end of the year, only two remained. The constitutional monarchists had departed in July 1791, and although some returned in the aftermath of the Champ de Mars massacre, a permanent and lasting split had been created between the Jacobins and the newly formed Fillons. What remained within the Jacobins was thus the Republicans and the Populists. Although neither faction had an official party leader, so to speak, many of the more prominent Republicans were Brousseauans, including Jacques Brousseau himself. Having once led the Cercle Social, that particular political society remained closed after the Tricolor Terror, and Brousseau and his associates instead carved out a new home within the Jacobins. Like the Republicans, the Populists had several leading figures as well, but one of, if not the most influential, was Robespierre. In many ways, Robespierre had been pivotal in keeping the Populist movement alive in the aftermath of the Champ de Mars massacre. As blood was spilt in the capital, Marat, Danton, and other radical revolutionary leaders either laid low or fled the country altogether. When the smoke cleared, it was Robespierre the Incorruptible, then still a deputy of the National Assembly, who used the podiums of both the National Chamber and the reduced Jacobin Club to advance the cause of the Democratic Revolution. In doing so, he established for himself an even greater reputation as a champion of liberty and equality. It was from this position of quite considerable authority that Robespierre clashed with the Brousseauans. Originally, Robespierre did not oppose war. Robespierre was no pacifist, and he certainly recognised the merits of limited conflict to advance the revolutionary agenda. But by December 1791, the hero of the populist left had concluded that far from saving the revolution from its numerous enemies, the proposed conflict advocated by Brousseau would instead further endanger the revolutionary cause. In fact, it would likely allow those numerous enemies to strangle the fledgling constitution and resurrect the old regime. Robespierre's logic was both simple and astute. If the king supported war, if Narbonne supported war, if Lafayette supported war, then surely he, a committed revolutionary, should not support war. Robespierre reasoned, correctly, that the only reason the Fillons and the court favoured conflict was because they saw in the coming struggle a means to empower themselves and their politics. That empowerment would jeopardise not only Robespierre's vision for a more democratic revolutionary France, but potentially revolutionary France itself. Thus, Robespierre decided he would oppose all efforts to drive the nation to war. If the court and the Fillons intended to use war as a means of strengthening their domestic political position, then Robespierre was not about to assist them in their counter-revolutionary schemes. On the 12th of December 1791, Robespierre preached to the Jacobins that a war led by such men and supported by such factions could not possibly 
be in the interests of the revolution. To whom will you entrust the direction of this war? To the agents of the government? You will give supreme power to those who want your ruin. War, therefore, is what we should most fear. In our present circumstances, it is the greatest scourge that can threaten liberty. If we consider the real motives for war, if we penetrate our enemy's true intentions, we must see that our only course is that of waiting. Arguing that the revolutionaries should overcome their domestic threats prior to any conflict with foreign foes, Robespierre attacked the naivety of the Brissoans for seeking to empower the very men who would cripple the revolution should they be given the chance. But shall we await the orders of the war office to destroy thrones? Shall we await the signal of the court? Shall we be commanded by these patricians, these eternal favourites of despotism, in this war against aristocrats and kings? No. Let us march forward alone. Let us be our own leaders. But see, the orators of war stop me. Here is Monsieur Brissot, who tells me that Monsieur le Comte de Narbonne must conduct this affair, that we must march under the orders of Monsieur le Marquis de Lafayette, that the executive power alone possesses the right of leading the nation to victory and freedom. Ah, citizens, this word has dispelled all the charm. Goodbye, victory and the independence of the people. If the scepters of Europe ever be broken, it will not be by such hands. Spain will continue for some time the degraded slave of superstition and royalism. Leopold will continue the tyrant of Germany and Italy. And we shall not speedily behold Cato's or Cicero's replace the Pope and the Cardinals in the conclave. I declare openly that war, as I understand the term, war such as I have proposed, is impracticable. And if it be the war of the court, of the ministers, of the patricians who affect patriotism, that we must accept, oh, then, far from believing in the freedom of the word, I despair of your liberty. The wisest course left us is to defend it against the perfidy of those enemies at home who lull you with these heroic illusions. To Robespierre, the idea that France should declare war on foreign foes merely to expose internal enemies seemed ludicrous. The Brissoans intended to place the power of the military in the hands of the very men who had opposed the revolution. Lafayette, for example, had led the Champ de Mars massacre. And now the Brissoans asked the people to simply trust that he would do good deeds at the head of an army. Narbonne, for example, had been installed with the support of the Fillons, the same men who had led the reactionary tricolour terror just months prior and who had attempted to alter the constitution while doing so. And of course, there was the king, the man who tried to flee the revolution 
and whose own wife, according to the Brissoans themselves, headed the sinister Austrian committee, a cabal of traitors who were supposedly betraying the revolution. How could the Brissoans reasonably argue that a successful war was even possible when it was to be conducted through the empowerment of these known reactionaries? Less than a week after his initial anti-war speech to the Jacobins, Robespierre argued once more on the 18th of December that such a plan was ill-advised and dangerous. War, cunningly provoked and directed by a treacherous government, has always been the rock upon which free peoples have founded. The court is setting a trap for you by proposing war. Let us first subdue our internal enemies and then march against our external ones, if they still exist. The idea of empowering the revolutionaries' domestic adversaries to eliminate the revolution's internal threats was just one of the many reasons that Robespierre opposed the war. In perhaps his most famous anti-war remark, Robespierre authored an expression which has since become a catch cry for anti-interventionists. Repudiating the idea that the oppressed nations of Europe would simply rise up against their tyrannical governments, Robespierre proclaimed that no one likes armed missionaries. While the Brissoans prophesied that a general revolution would engulf the continent, Robespierre argued that a war policy dependent on mutinies and defections was simply absurd. Far more likely, he proposed, was intense resistance to a foreign foe proclaiming a foreign ideology. The most extravagant idea that can arise in the mind of a politician is the belief that a people need only make an armed incursion into the territory of a foreign people to make it adopt its laws and its constitution. No one likes armed missionaries, and the first counsel given by nature and prudence is to repel them as enemies. Robespierre's assault against the logic of the war party didn't stop there. While Brousseau, Vernieu, Isnard and Godet argued that the nation must defend its besmirched honour, Robespierre denounced honour as an aristocratic concept which merely empowered the old regime and its backward principles. The honour that you seek to revive is the friends and support of despotism. It is the honour of the heroes of the aristocracy, of all the tyrants. It is the honour of crime. Finally, Robespierre demonstrated his astute opposition to the war, as he argued that conflict endangered the revolution to the perils of military dictatorship. Adding yet another reason to avoid a continental war, Robespierre warned that a successful general could use his prestige and authority to undermine the revolution's principles and seize power for either himself or the court. Backing Robespierre was the radical journalist Jean-Paul Morat, and to a lesser extent, 
other prominent faces in the Cordelier Club, including Danton and Demolar. Morat wrote in April 1792, What afflicts the friends of liberty is that we have more to fear from success than from defeat. The danger is lest one of our generals be crowned with victory, and lest he lead his victorious army against the capital to secure the triumph of the despot. Robespierre shared a similar point of view, arguing that the victories of our generals would be more disastrous to us than our defeats. Considering that a certain general named Napoleon Bonaparte would indeed topple a future revolutionary government, with the benefit of hindsight, well, Robespierre's warnings look pretty damn accurate. Altogether, Robespierre and the small group of individuals who supported him outlined an extensive case against the coming conflict. Critically, however, in articulating a case against the war proposed by the Brousseauans, Robespierre and his followers had simultaneously articulated a case against the revolutionary leadership who championed the policy of peace through war. In other words, Robespierre and his allies, who were soon to become known as the Montagnards, or the Mountain, had not only attacked the Brousseauan war policy, but the Brousseauans themselves. In a revolutionary environment rife with factionalism, in a world where conspiracy lurked in every shadow, such attacks were prone to rapid escalation. And that is exactly what occurred. Having laid out his peace agenda, the Brousseauans accused Robespierre of failing to understand the true needs of the revolution. Outraged, Robespierre fired back, claiming it was the Brousseauans who were dangerously misguided and ill-informed. These personal accusations escalated quickly. Before long, the Brousseauans were accusing Robespierre of treason arguing that his pacifist agenda was deliberately aiding the enemies of the revolution. According to the Brousseauans, Robespierre, Marat, and other populists sought to use peace to prolong the country's ongoing commotions, and in doing so, further advance their own political position. Robespierre naturally retaliated, an understandable reaction even if he wasn't known amongst his detractors for his pride and vanity. Robespierre accused Brousseau of conspiracy with the court, and Marat, assisting the incorruptible, alleged that the Brousseauans feared not for the future of the revolution, but for their own place within it. By the time war was actually declared in April 1792, the two sides had permanently splintered into opposing camps. Worryingly, each side genuinely believed that the other was deliberately endangering the revolution in order to further their own pursuit of power. Now, if you're listening to this and your inner Ron Burgundy is thinking to himself, boy, that escalated quickly. Well, yes, it did. But it's important to note that this split within the Jacobins 
wasn't just a sudden and overblown disagreement over a single, albeit important, policy. In reality, the division which now gripped the Jacobins had been months in the making. The dispute between the Brousseauans and the Montagnards, and particularly between Brousseau and Robespierre, originated not just from a disagreement over foreign policy, but in fact from a broader clash of both ideologies and personalities. On the ideological front, throughout 1791 and early 1792, a number of substantial ideological disagreements erupted between Robespierre and the Brousseauans. On matters of religion, for example, the Brousseauans pursued a much more aggressive agenda than Robespierre. Robespierre rejected aspects of the religious reforms advocated by the Brousseauans, such as the marriage of priests. And when Robespierre had the audacity to state that Providence watched over the revolution, the Brousseauan deputy Godet berated him for such superstitious language. More importantly, however, was the issue of a future French Republic. Even after the flight to Varennes and the tricolour terror, Robespierre was no Republican radical. In fact, Robespierre was suspicious of Republicanism and viewed its advocacy as dangerous to the revolutionary cause. Arguing that the word Republic was a powerful weapon for the counter-revolution, Robespierre was content to advance his democratic and revolutionary agenda within the constitutional framework established in 1791. Brousseau, of course, was a committed Republican. He had led key efforts after Varenne to replace the constitutional monarchy, and his fingerprints were all over the petition, which was the centre of the Champ de Mars massacre. While Robespierre viewed republicanism as dangerous to the revolutionary project, Brousseau viewed republicanism as the goal of the revolutionary project. And in fact, the establishment of a republic was a key aim of his war policy. These ideological differences helped to fuel the personality feud between the two men. Robespierre held Brousseau partly accountable for the tragedy at the Champ de Mars and refuted the notion that Brousseau was somehow a better advocate for the common man. Like Robespierre, Brousseau also viewed himself to be the leading figure of the radical revolution, and naturally, the spotlight only had room for one. With both men believing that they, and they alone, were the true champion of the revolution's radical movement, and both men dismissing the other's ideology as flawed, a bitter and personal rivalry was always a possibility. Unfortunately, this rivalry would help to transform a heated debate over foreign policy into an unbridgeable revolutionary schism. A schism which would ultimately claim the lives of hundreds of revolutionaries. The one additional factor to remember as we discuss this historic feud is the environment in which this debate occurred. An environment that can be characterised by beliefs in secret plots and sinister conspiracies. As discussed in episode 24, belief in counter-revolutionary conspiracies was rife throughout late 1791 and early 1792. It was alleged that nobles were hoarding grain, that emigres were fueling inflation, that renegade priests were sparking violent unrest, 
and that the court was conspiring with foreign foes. In this environment, both the Jacobins and the Fionns were convinced that numerous plots were working to overthrow the revolution. As the Jacobin deputy Claude Bassier proclaimed in November 1791, We are surrounded by conspirators. Everywhere plots are underway, and you are continually receiving denunciations of individual facts, which are all connected with the great conspiracy, about whose existence none of us can have any doubt. This sort of thinking was commonplace, and this belief in vast conspiracies actually helped to fuel support for the war. As the nation's woes multiplied, and as the deputies' suspicions ballooned, many increasingly saw war as the only way to paralyse these hidden schemes and expose the cabals which worked in the shadows. As Vernieu proclaimed, This state of uncertainty, of rumours, of foreboding, is far more frightening and terrible, it seems to me, than any actual state of war. Now, this environment is relevant to the feud between the Brousseauans and the Montagnards because it helps to explain how this debate, mixed with a bitter personal rivalry, became a full-blown schism amongst the revolutionary left. A schism that not only split the club into competing factions, but eventually saw each side genuinely believe that the other was a traitor to the fatherland. If the Brissoans were willing to believe that the Fionn deputies were traitors, and if the Brissoans were willing to believe that the Fionn ministers were traitors, and if the Brissoans were willing to believe that the court if not the monarchs themselves, were traitors. Then, was it really that big a jump to accuse Robespierre and his allies of being traitors as well? Especially considering that, like the Fillons, Robespierre had resisted the Republic, argued on behalf of the priests, and had offered support for the loathed constitution of 1791. In an environment where everyone was a suspect, where plots and conspiracies were taken not only as fact, but as a common occurrence, the rapid demonization of opponents was a natural and unfortunately logical endpoint for what might have started as a mere disagreement over policy. If your policy was designed to literally save the nation, and your opponent's policy was to stop you. Then, with some oversimplified reasoning, your opponents weren't so much opposing you, but the nation itself. As Anakin Skywalker so eloquently put it, if you're not with me, then you're my enemy. That was the kind of logic which fueled factionalism, conspiracy, and ultimately the blood-stained nature of the French Revolution. The Sith were not the only ones who dealt in absolutes. Historian Timothy Tackett summarises the events of late 1791 and early 1792. 
The confrontation between Robespierre and Brousseau began in December 1791 over whether or not the country should go to war, a possibility that Brousseau supported passionately but that Robespierre came rapidly to oppose. The exchange in the Jacobin Club was relatively civil at first, until Brousseau and the Girondins began a series of direct attacks against Robespierre, claiming that they, and not he, best understood and was supported by the people. Robespierre, who had long identified with the common man and who viewed himself as the voice of the people, was indignant and outraged. Thereafter, the rivalry became extraordinarily personal and bitter, involving the friends and allies of the two men in a series of brutal attacks by both sides. In the short term, Brousseau and his supporters succeeded in crushing the anti-war position within the assembly, and they did their best to humiliate Robespierre in the Jacobin Club. But Robespierre continued to maintain a strong following in the club, and over time, especially as the war went badly, he would win the support of a minority in the legislative as well. Already by the spring of 1792, his followers there were becoming to be known as the Mountain or the Montagnards, from their habit of sitting on the highest seats at the left end of the hall. Tackett goes on to write. And as Fillon's and Jacobin's exchanged accusations of treason, Brousseauans and Montagnards were doing much the same. Both Brousseau and his friend Godet insinuated that Robespierre was insidiously pushing pacifism in order to undermine war preparations and thus favour the Austrians. Robespierre was soon making a similar allegation against the Girondins, accusing them of having sold out to the Austrian committee and of being counter-revolutionaries. So, as the nation journeyed down the road to war, the Jacobin Club descended into a war of its own. The Brousseauans preached the merits of continental conflict and denounced Robespierre and his associates as pacifists who intended to use the nation's prolonged disorder to further their own political ambitions. Robespierre retaliated, and Marat levelled a similar accusation in return proclaiming that the Brousseauans were seeking war merely to create the disorder necessary to further their own political agenda. Which, of course, is exactly what they were doing. As each side accused the other of conspiracy and treason, the factions crossed the Rubicon, and by the time that war was declared in April 1792, reconciliation between the two rival camps was as improbable as reunion with the Fionns. Before we move on, however, I would like to take the time to note an interesting critique of Robespierre by historian Georges Lefebvre. Lefebvre, like many historians across the political spectrum, noted Robespierre's accurate prediction of what war would unleash. Indeed, whether a conservative, liberal, Marxist, neo-Marxist or revisionist historian, it's hard to fault Robespierre's anti-war position. History demonstrates that France was unprepared for war, that the numerous factions proposing conflict were indeed doing so for their own political gains, that foreign nations 
would resist armed missionaries and that a dictator would rise amongst the chaos to install his own despotic rule. So, what is interesting about Lefebvre's comments is not so much his praise for Robespierre's foresight, but a critique he makes against Robespierre's assault on the Brissoans. Originating from the Marxist school of thought, one would generally expect a pro-Robespierre, anti-Brousseau sort of tone from Lefebvre. Yet, in this case, Lefebvre contends that Robespierre ignored the legitimate threats the Brissoans accurately identified, and that the incorruptible went too far in his attacks against the Brissoans, attacks which ultimately cemented the division of the Jacobin Club, and in many ways, the revolution itself. Historian George Lefebvre writes as follows, referring to the Brissoans as the Girondins. With surprising foresight, he outlined the potential dangers. Popular resistance to armed missionaries, inevitable dictatorship, overwhelming burdens, weariness and disgust. He exacerbated the Gironde in particular by criticising its ambivalent position. It offered itself as the guarantor of Lafayette, the man of the Shop de Mars, and demanded that Narbonne, the king's minister, be trusted because war required unity of forces. Foreseeing the schemes of the Fillons, Robespierre maintained that before opening hostilities, the assembly must gain mastery over the king and weed out counter-revolutionary officers. He was nonetheless too harsh in disparaging the Girondins. They were not mistaken when they judged the revolution menaced, while he insisted that foreign powers had peaceful intentions. And if propaganda had not produced the desired results, neither had it passed unnoticed. Although he did not actually say that Brousseau was conspiring with the court, he aroused suspicions to that effect, and the Girondins retaliated in kind. An interesting observation from a historian who one might suspect would offer a more pro-Montagnard opinion on the origins of the Jacobin Club's schism. While the Jacobin Club descended into disorder as it ferociously debated the merits of war, another group of actors in this game of revolutionary thrones did much the same. And it's probably not a group that would first come to mind. As the king demanded that the German princes dispel the emigres from their territories, pandemonium erupted across the Rhineland. Now, to back up a moment, Let's recap on the very simple plan of the war party to get this conflict started. Step one, France would demand that the German princes disperse the emigres. Step two, the German princes, backed by Austria, would tell France to take a hike. Step three, France would declare war on the princes on the grounds that they were harbouring the enemies of the nation and thus themselves were enemies of the nation. The commencements of hostilities would result in Austria joining the party, and voila, continental war. Step one had gone to plan. The king attended the legislative assembly on the 14th of December, declared his ultimatum to the princes, and Narbonne promptly began preparations for the coming conflict. 
Step two, however, is where things hit a snag. The assumption that the German princes would simply rebuff the demands of Louis XVI was misplaced to say the least. As news of the French threat became known in the Rhineland, panic gripped the Germanic aristocracy. The electors and their courts feared that a French invasion could spur revolutionary uprisings, mutinies and revolts. This pro-revolutionary unrest would threaten the rights and privileges of the local aristocracy, and the electors were far from convinced that they would be able to subdue an agitated populace. After all, King Louis XVI had failed to do so, and he was the King of France. Far from giving the French the one-finger salute, the electors panicked and begged Emperor Leopold II for assistance. Leopold, however, was having none of it. Remember, Leopold was, as one historian put it, the least warlike of any European sovereign. The emperor personally detested the emigres and was still unwilling to provoke an avoidable war with France. Furthermore, Barnev and Duport, having not given up on peace entirely, had written to the emperor asking that Austria assist in the dispersal of the disgruntled aristocrats. Although it's entirely likely that the efforts of the Fillon Peace Party mattered little to the emperor's decision-making, intervene he did. The emperor told the princes that he would assist them if France invaded, but only if the emigres had been dispersed. Consequently, while the king's brothers were allowed to stay at Coublentz, the emigre army was forced to relocate, although, admittedly, they didn't move far and remained in imperial territory. Of course, despite his reluctance to embrace conflict, Leopold could hardly let the French bully the small states of the Rhineland. Indeed, all the great powers of Europe were wary of French influence over the smaller Germanic states, and were cautious of how revolutionary ideology could spread should these territories become French satellites. As a result, Leopold resorted to his tried and tested method of threats, demands, and ultimatums. Remember, after the flight to Varennes, Leopold had used this tactic successfully. Twice. The French pardoned King Louis of any crimes in July, just weeks after the emperor released the Padua Circular. Furthermore, when the French adopted the constitution of 1791 in September, they did so just weeks after the infamous declaration of Pilnitz. Convinced that his strategy of threats and ultimatums had merit, this is the course that Leopold pursued. However, the Legislative Assembly was a very different beast from the National Assembly, and the deputies of the former particularly the Brissoans who controlled the diplomatic committee, had no intention of rolling over and adhering to Austrian commands. Over the next few months, demands and counter-demands flew between the two sides, as both the French and the Austrians required increasingly unreasonable concessions from the other. Things started to come to a head in February, however. On the 7th of February, 1792, Austria signed an alliance with their historic rivals, Prussia. This agreement represented a tremendous shift in European politics, 
and the idea that these two nemeses could fight alongside each other would have been inconceivable just a few decades before. Just like Gimli never thought he would die side by side with an elf, the average Austrian soldier never thought that he would fight side by side with a Prussian. To the revolutionaries in Paris, this groundbreaking alliance all but confirmed their suspicion that Vienna intended war. More importantly, however, were the actions of the Austrian Chancellor Kaunitz a few weeks later. On the 17th of February, as part of the continually escalating war of words, Kaunitz denounced the radical Brissoans and their ambition to drag Europe into a terrible and unnecessary war. Furthermore, Kaunitz alleged that European states had the right to punish any revolutionary Jacobin who endangered the monarchy by failing to comply with the Constitution of 1791. How the French responded to this intolerable declaration triggered a series of events which guaranteed the commencement of hostilities. Understandably, the Brissoans were outraged by this latest provocation. For months, the war party within the Jacobins had been arguing that war was required to restore the nation's honour. These latest threats and denunciations merely besmirched the kingdom's glory further and reinforced the calls of the Brissoans that something had to be done. Yet this view was not shared by all in the chambers of power. The foreign minister, de Lassalle, was associated with the peace party within the Fillons. Seeking to avoid further escalation, when de Lassalle replied to this provocative and public declaration, he did so in a manner which could be described as timid and passive. Upon discovering this, the Brissoans were infuriated. De Lassar's submissive response had humiliated the nation further, and from their posts in the Legislative Assembly, leading Brissoans assaulted de Lassar for his cowardice and weakness. Furthermore, they attributed this spineless exchange to the work of the treasonous Austrian committee. Vernu made his displeasure with the Tuileries Palace clear, and in doing so, struck fear into the ministry which resided within. From the tribune where I am speaking may be seen the palace, where perverse counsellors lead astray and deceive the king given to you by the constitution, where they forge chains for the nation and arrange the manoeuvres which are to deliver us up to Austria, after having caused us to pass through the horrors of civil war. Terror and dismay have often issued from that famous place. Let them re-enter it today in the name of the law. Let them penetrate all hearts and teach all who dwell there that our constitution accords inviability to the king alone. Let them know that the law will overtake all the guilty without exception, and that there will be not a single head convicted of crime which can escape its sword. 
On March the 6th, Godet echoed these sentiments. Questioning the loyalty of the entire ministry, the deputy proclaimed, It is time to know whether the ministers wish to make Louis XVI king of the French or king of Kublentz. Amongst all the commotion, the war minister Narbonne, associating with the war party within the Fillons, saw his chance to bring the conflict to a head. Narbonne began agitating against Delassar, but more importantly, he also began to agitate against de Molleville, the minister of the navy. De Molleville was the only minister in the king's cabinet who Louis personally trusted and, perhaps unsurprisingly, is often described as a reactionary royalist. Louis was outraged by Narbonne's intrigue and promptly dismissed the minister on the 9th of March. Like Necker's dismissal before him, the sacking of the popular Narbonne triggered a new political crisis. The Brissoans, who had just spent months championing Narbonne, swiftly retaliated. The next day, on the 10th of March, the Brissoans successfully impeached Delassar and denounced others supposedly associated with the treasonous Austrian committee. Perhaps surprisingly, these public denunciations included not only ministers and court officers, but the Queen herself. In short order, other ministers began to resign in fear of the radical Jacobins who seemingly controlled the assembly. Almost overnight, the nation found itself on the precipice of war, and it lacked not only a war minister, but an entire ministry. Spotting an opportunity, Lafayette proposed his on Fillon replacements, but the king would have none of it. Narbonne was associated with Lafayette, and while the former had caused the king's most recent dilemma, the latter had long been viewed within the palace with both suspicion and contempt. Instead, Louis elevated allies of the Brissoans. Of course, Brissot, Venu, Isnard, Godet, and other leading Brissoans could not join the ministry themselves, as the constitution prevented current and former deputies from becoming ministers. As a result, men associated with the Brissoans had to fill the empty seats instead. The most important of these men were Roland, the new Minister of the Interior, and de Maurier, the new Minister for Foreign Affairs. Roland, a former inspector of manufacturers, was a committed Brissoan, as were several other members of the new executive. However, de Maurier was the odd man out. A soldier who served bravely in the Seven Years' War, de Maurier was a committed constitutional monarchist, and his personal politics aligned more with Lafayette than Brissot. Nevertheless, de Maurier had the support of the Brissoans, and this ministry became known as the Brissoan, or the Girondin Ministry. The installation of this new ministry had two immediate consequences. Firstly, it convinced the Montagnards that the Brissoans were in league with the court, just as they had suspected. 
Robespierre had accused Brousseau and his allies of becoming counter-revolutionaries. And now, in not only joining, but comprising the king's ministry, here was the proof. The split within the Jacobins was growing and ever deeper. More importantly, however, the new ministry convinced the Austrians that the French intended to declare war. A ministry manned by the war party could mean nothing else. However, I choose my words carefully, because while the new ministry convinced the Austrians that France meant to declare war, it did not convince Emperor Leopold II. Why? Because the emperor was dead. On March the 1st, 1792, Leopold died at the age of 44. Of course, such a young death has led some to suspect poison, but the historical consensus is natural causes. Dying alongside the emperor was any hope of avoiding conflict. Replacing Leopold was his 24-year-old son, Francis II. Francis had none of the traits of his father. If Leopold was cautious, Francis was rash and daring. If Leopold was a liberal monarch, Francis was a conservative autocrat. Adventurous and reckless, the new emperor was inclined to use military force to solve the French conundrum. In fact, his eagerness to adopt a war policy increased as Marie Antoinette began to secretly leak detailed plans of France's war preparations. With a new man in Vienna and a new ministry in Paris, it took just a few weeks for war to be declared. When war was declared, there was no noteworthy opposition within the assembly. Less than 1% of deputies opposed the war. Only seven lawmakers, associates of Robespierre and the Montagnards. Underscoring just how isolated Robespierre was with his anti-war position, many future Montagnards actually supported the declaration of war. When Louis proposed the declaration on the 20th of April 1792, he proclaimed that all prefer war to the continued endangerment of the nation. Declaring war so that France may live in peace, Louis adopted Aristotle's reasoning as he pushed for the embrace of a revolutionary crusade. Unfortunately for France, and for Europe, a lasting peace would not be obtained for almost a quarter of a century. And unfortunately for King Louis, he would not be there to see it. Thank you for listening to episode 26, The Brousseauans and the Montagnards. There will be two episode extras for this episode, one focusing on the very unfortunate and gruesome fate of the foreign minister, de Lassar, and another on the surprising manner in which King Louis formally requested war. Next week, we'll explore the initial setbacks of the conflict and the notable disturbances that this creates in Paris. Now, If you've enjoyed today's show and you thought it was worth a dollar, please consider supporting the show by Patreon. You'll get access to a range of bonus content and the more people who support the show means the more frequently I can produce. Also, a reminder that if you know a friend or a colleague who's interested in history, please consider passing on to them that history isn't black and white.
As always, thank you for listening. Stay safe and have a great day. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.